The recommendations and opinions presented by our guest speakers may not represent the official position of the American Heart Association. The materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute an endorsement or instruction by the AHA. The AHA does not endorse any product or device. Welcome to Spot the Bleed, an American Heart Association ICH Guideline Refresher Series, the podcast dedicated to providing comprehensive insights in hemorrhagic stroke care. I'm your host, Sue Abelt, Program Consultant at the American Heart Association. We're excited to bring you content that addresses guideline-directed care across the continuum, from patient diagnosis, treatment, and all the way through secondary prevention. In each episode, you will hear from our clinical experts as they break down the ICH guidelines into tangible offerings. Thank you for joining us today as we aim to equip you with refreshed knowledge to enhance ICH care and drive positive outcomes. Let's get started. All right. Well, welcome to the show today. So my name is Tom Growey. I'm an emergency medicine and EMS uh, physician over at the Medical College of Wisconsin in uh, Milwaukee. And I'm here with two great guests, two emergency medicine physicians who I love working with at MCW, uh, Mary Jordan and Erica Forbes. So go ahead and say hello. Hi. It's nice for everyone listening. Hello. Thanks for having us. Great. So we are going to spend some time today talking about intracranial hemorrhage care in the emergency department. So we'll go through a little bit of a case uh, of somebody who presents with, an, with ICH. We'll then talk about some management tips and kind of close out by talking about how we reproduce good results and how we build good ICH systems of care. Because the key is not to manage one patient successfully with, uh, with an intracranial hemorrhage, but to really make sure that every patient that comes in with this diagnosis, no matter the time of day that they have it or the uh, um, presentation, uh, we are able to identify it and treat it appropriately for, for all patients. Um, so Mary, why don't you start us off by just giving us uh, a case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the case that we have for today to kind of discuss um, starts in the field. So EMS activates a code stroke. Um, and you get a page at, in the emergency department of a 76-year-old female, left-sided weakness and numbness with a last known well of about one hour prior um, on Eloquist. Vitals, her heart rate is 88. Her blood pressure is 180 over 90. Her temperature is 98.6. She's breathing at a respiratory rate of 14. And her, she's satting 98%. Um, so the patient arrives in your department. Um, and you get a pretty similar handoff from EMS. Um, and what you note is that she has a history of atrial fibrillation on Eliquis, high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease. Um, and family called initially because they were worried uh, that she was more confused than usual. Um, she was at home with her husband watching football when she started to feel unwell. Um, she told him she had a pretty severe headache um, and that she was having trouble um, and feeling weaker than usual. So they called EMS. Um, she describes to you um, that she has a headache and that her left arm and left leg are really weak. Um, family noted that she wasn't really looking towards the left side of her body. Um, she woke up this morning, felt fine, um, but did get nauseous at one point at home and had an episode of emesis with EMS. 
no recent falls or traumatic injuries that she can tell you or her family can tell you. Um, she's otherwise feeling okay, no fevers, no infectious symptoms. She said she takes all of her medications as prescribed. Uh, most recently took her Eloquist this morning, um, about eight hours prior to coming to the emergency room. Otherwise, she's never had any symptoms like this before. Uh, not having chest pain or shortness of breath in your view of systems is otherwise negative. Um, her vital signs in the emergency department are pretty similar um, to what you noted with EMS. She's hypertensive, um, but otherwise vitals are normal. On exam, you notice uh, severe hemi-neglect of the left side of her body, and she has some right gaze deviation. Uh, she has zero out of five strength in her upper and lower extremity on the left, um, and five out of five strength in her upper and lower extremity on the right. Um, she also has no sensation on the left side of her body. Um, she's otherwise alert, responding to questions as you would expect um, and kind of following commands. Her language is unaffected and the rest of her exam is unremarkable. Great, so a great case that should already have us thinking about a pretty wide differential, you know, ischemic uh, stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, some other things that can cause altered mental status um, and weakness in patients. Um, so Erica, when you hear this patient, you know, when you hear this patient's coming in by EMS, you know, um, before we get to the ER care, like what are you going to be preparing in your emergency department to get ready to receive this patient? Yeah, so I usually in preparation for this, these kinds of patients, we will, as this was called out as a stroke code, we'll make sure like we have our neurologist coming down to quickly evaluate the patient. I know I'm quickly going to need to get a neuro exam when the patient comes in after we get our set of vitals. One of the things we want to make sure we're aware of is uh, the patient's glucose. We want to make sure to check the patient's glucose when they get there. So I'm making sure my nursing staff is aware that that's going to be a priority for us once the patient arrives, just because sometimes having a low glucose can cause it to be, um, have some altered mental status as well. I also want to make sure I have my pharmacy ready, the pharmacy team ready, um, just because as we later found out when this patient arrived there on Eliquis, and if there's any sort of intracranial hemorrhage, we, things we want to think about are reversing any types of anticoagulation. So I want to make sure my pharmacy team is understanding and aware that that might be an option for us. Great, great. So you talked about getting a lot of people ready to receive this patient that you know, is obviously critically ill with with their uh, signs and symptoms, you know, with this hemi-neglect and weakness that EMS is, is talking about. Um, and even if you don't have pharmacy, you know, at your shop, it's good to think about, all right, I might need to reverse, you know, and what agents do I use? You know, it's certainly a lot more complicated uh, to reverse than uh, back in the day when everybody was on, you know, Coumadin and there was uh, one answer for, for that question, right? So, so, you know, this patient comes in, you know, with the signs and symptoms that Mary described, you know, what here is kind of making you think or have a high suspicion for intracranial hemorrhage as a uh, etiology? So this patient had sudden onset of symptoms. It wasn't something that necessarily gradually, you know, crept up. Um, and they also have, are having a headache with nausea and vomiting. Um, those in itself kind of scream, you know, is there an intracranial hemorrhage occurring currently in concordance with the neurologic symptoms that I'm seeing on exam? Um, especially in the setting of this patient is on anticoagulation, that makes me think this is more likely to be a hemorrhagic stroke versus an ischemic stroke. Okay, great. 
So you have a lot of good things, you know, that while your differential is broad, um, you know, that, that point that we are really concerned about in ICH, which is something that we need to intervene and act on, you know, very quickly. So, you know, a big part of uh, the first thing that you're going to do when this patient gets to the emergency department is obviously get them to the CAT scan as soon as you can. Um, and let's say you do that and you find that this patient's having a right-sided intracerebral hematoma with some involvement of the basal ganglia and lobar structures. So you get this read from the CT, either the radiologist is calling you and letting you know about it, or let's say that you're you know, in the CT scanner and this image is coming up on the screen and you see it as soon as it's popping in. Um, you know, what are your initial principles of management that, that you need to get to? And there is a lot going on here, so let's try to break it down into some different categories and, and some things that you're thinking about. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about blood pressure monitoring and how you would address that in this patient? Yeah, absolutely. So blood pressure monitoring is pretty important in these kinds of patients. Um, you want to think smooth and sustained blood pressure. You don't want big spikes high and low in their blood pressure. Research has shown that maintaining it around 130 to 150 is safe and beneficial, but you really don't want to drop it below 130 as this can be harmful. And you want to make sure that, you know, when we're lowering our blood pressure, specifically our systolic, we want to avoid any large variability within the systolic blood pressure because that can just cause increases or expansion of our intracranial hemorrhage. Okay. So, yeah, and when managing blood pressure, you know, there are a couple different agents that you could reach for if you're thinking uh, IV and things that will work quickly. So hydralazine, labetalol, you know, nicardipine drip uh, is another common one. You know, what's kind of your go-to plan for uh, for somebody to help make sure that you're getting this like smooth and sustained uh, management of, of blood pressure? I usually start with labetalol uh, or hydralazine first, but I typically will start towards labetalol first. And I'll start off with lower doses and see how the patient responds and see then if I need to add any additional agents um, or increase the dosing, I can do that. If I'm then unable to get a good control of the blood pressure based on just giving them some doses of blood pressure medications, then that's usually when I'll start putting the patient on like a nicardic grip to keep a better, slower, sustained blood pressure goal for them. Great. Um, Mary, do you have any other thoughts on, on blood pressure monitoring? I tend to like to start the drip, um, especially with a more severe intracranial hemorrhage kind of right away. Um, to, I think that it leads to that kind of more smooth and sustained goal. Um, and oftentimes these patients kind of tend towards being bradycardic. Um, but certainly depending on the situation and the degree of bleeding, I like a push dose to start if they're kind of more stable and it's a bit of a smaller bleed. Great. Yeah, and I think there certainly is like variability, you know, and how different providers would would get there. You know, I think one thing to consider is some, depending upon where you work, you might have more uh, quick access to different agents, which might decide might determine what you reach for first. You know, certainly kind of going for a push dose medicine is usually quicker than getting a, a drip up. You know, and I'll, and personally, like my practice is probably a little bit between the both of you. You know, if it's somebody that's like really close to where I want them to be, then I'll, I'll start with, you know, one dose of, uh, you know, labetalol or hydralazine, kind of depending on some patient factors. Um, but we'll reach for, um, you know, an icardipine if they're extremely hypertensive. Um, 
And I know that I'm probably going to be going that route anyway, but it is usually, you know, but usually I will give, you know, at least one, one dose of something else in route. So I uh, assume we'll get that set up. So, all right. So we've got blood pressure, we got blood pressure monitoring uh, covered. What about uh, anticoagulation uh, reversal? So this patient's on uh, Eliquis. So um, tell us a little bit about how you'd approach that in, uh, in this patient. Yeah, so whenever patients come in on any type of anticoagulation, there's concern for hemorrhage. What we want to do is reverse the anticoagulation um, just because patients that have intracranial hemorrhage that are on blood, blood thinners have a higher risk of poor outcome and expansion of their, their hematoma due to the blood thinners themselves. So it's really crucial to reverse this. So uh, this patient was on Eliquis, which commonly is reversed with PCC or the, you know, brand name that we kind of use is Pacentra, as some might colloquially know. Um, so that would typically this or um, Andexanet Alpha could also help reverse the patient too, but uh, PCC is generally more available in emergency departments and it would be easier to reverse uh, and just like grab for first uh, for these types of patients. Other things that uh, PCC can help reverse are warfarin as well. That uh, will reverse the patient quicker than things like vitamin K, which are commonly thought to use with reversal of warfarin. Um, PCC can do this over a shorter amount of time. Um, so that's crucial when you have a patient coming in on warfarin with an ICH. Um, then there are, are lesser, less common anticoagulation that we can that we see in patients. Um, I can't tell you the last time I saw a patient with Debogatran coming in. Um, that's not necessarily one that we commonly see, but there's a, a monoclonal antibody Idricuzumab that you can give uh, to reverse this anticoagulation. And then for heparin or low molecular weight heparin, we can give protamine as well, and this can help reverse those patients. Great. And I think it's important to know like the um, the time of when they last took that last dose, because that might impact uh, whether you're going to reverse, you know, reverse or not. Because they might be on, you know, uh, they might be on Eliquis or, you know, pick your pick your medication. But maybe you've got a really good history that tells you that they haven't taken it in a few weeks, um, you know. Uh, but when in doubt, always, you know, err on the side of reversal. So this patient isn't on any antiplatelet um, medications, but you know, what are your thoughts on uh, reversing, you know, aspirin, Flavix by giving platelets? It's generally not recommended to do that. Um, I know a lot of times our neurosurgeons want to especially know when a patient comes in on aspirin um, because they are worried about uh, platelet dysfunction in these patients. But um, according to our guidelines, it's not necessarily uh, recommended. Okay. All right. So the other thing... Go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say the other thing I think about too with anticoagulation reversal is um, you can order a factor 10A level. Um, if you know a patient's coming in and you don't have a clear history of when they last took their blood thinner um, and 
at least in, in our lab, it results pretty quick and it's a, it gives you a good indicator of whether they've been taking that anticoagulation and whether they're gonna need that immediate reversal. Great point. So if that's something that's also you know available to you where uh, at the hospital where you're working, it's something to uh, to consider. Great. Um, so tell us a little bit about glucose monitoring and uh, temperature management in these patients. Yeah. So for glucose and temperature, really the name of the game is going to be keeping things normal. Um, so it's there's no universal guidelines for glucose monitoring in patients with ICH, but we want to make sure that they're not hyperglycemic, as this has shown to have increased uh, a higher risk of mortality. Um, it should be wanting to maintain kind of normal glycemia in these patients. And it's generally the same with uh, temperature management as well. So these patients will commonly have a fever. And having a sustained fever has shown to have poor outcomes in these patients, but hypothermia um, hasn't necessarily been shown to uh, help these types of patients. So we really just want to, um, you know, make sure they're not sustained having fevers. Um, so you can consider treating fevers that they are having. But I really think about just making these patients kind of as normal as we can. Great. So I think and that that's a good theme that even kind of gets with um, blood pressure monitoring to an extent and anticoagulation. You know, you're trying to make the glucose uh, normal as possible, temperature management, focus on normal levels, you know, blood pressure um, to an extent, you know, like we talked about, we don't want to drop anybody too quick and we're maybe a little bit above, uh, above normal if possible. Uh, but then anticoagulation, trying to get that, that back to more of a normal state. So. All good things, you know, putting patients in a in a situation where we're not adding extra insult to raise ICP, you know, or doing things that are going to cause the bleeding to necessarily get worse. So um, what are some things that people may have done in the past or, um, you know, may think about with other brain brain related emergencies that generally aren't recommended for ICH patients? I know in the past they used to give steroids uh, for these types of patients, um, which actually has not shown to improve outcomes. So steroids should generally be avoided in these patients. There's also not great evidence on empiric seizure prophylaxis. It doesn't improve outcomes and there's no when there's no evidence of seizures. So jumping just empirically to, you know, give a patient Keppra or give them steroids has not actually been shown to improve outcomes in these patients. Okay. Yeah, so that's really, uh, really helpful too. You know, you want to, especially when we want to focus this period of time right after diagnosis on things that are going to make a difference, um, you know, really focus on the things that we addressed earlier with anticoagulation, rever uh, reversal, managing blood pressure, you know, uh, don't need to you know, get worked up about steroid seizure, you know, platelets, like those things are not going to, uh, going to help patients, uh, you know, generally. So, all right. So, um, you know, let's say that you've got your, uh, your patient in front of you, you know, that we presented, what's going to give you some concern that the ICP is rising and that this patient's getting, getting sicker? Yeah, so that is one of the biggest concerns for these patients as their hemorrhage is at risk of expanding. They are at risk of herniating. 
Um, so the things we look for are kind of what we call Cushing's triad. So this is hypertension. The patient will also be bradycardic and have an abnormal respiratory rate, abnormal respiratory rate. Um, so whenever we're concerned that the patient is herniating, what we'll consider for these patients are hypertonics, such as 3% saline or mannitol. Um, whatever you have in your institution uh, would work well for patients who are herniating. I know I generally will go towards 3% saline first, um, but there hasn't necessarily been shown any improvement of patients if you're on a continuous hyperosmolar therapy. So these are generally given in uh, boluses if we can. Um, also, what we can do to avoid increased intracranial pressure is we can elevate the head of the bed to at least 30 degrees. Uh, that just helps with cerebral blood flow. Um, also treating any pain. And um, if the patient needs, if their GCS is decreasing and they need temporary hyperventilation um, and you're able to do that and kind of control their respirations, uh, hyperventilating the patient can also help decrease intracranial pressure as well. Yeah, generally, what I think of with hyperventilation is this is not a person, you know, if they're intubated, that we want to have them hyperventilated on the vents because it's very easy to set the vent at a hyperventilation rate and then walk away, you know, and forget about it. Next thing you know, you've been hyperventilating the patient for an hour. Um, so this is something that you want to do acutely with a bag valve mask so that you're being very, very uh, aware, very deliberate in how much hyperventilation you're providing. Um, to try to uh, temporize um, temporize herniation. You know, great, great points on Cushing's triad. You know, I think the thing that I also think about is if that GCS is rapidly decreasing, that's a sign that herniation's on the way. Um, and Cushing's triad is a, is a great thing to look out for. And sometimes that can be a, a way finding. So, so in addition to that, just thinking about this rapidly decreasing GCS is something that should really make me worry that herniation is, is uh, impending or maybe even actively um, happening at this time. Uh, so we've got the sick patient, you know, and obviously we need to call neurosurgery to try to help out with this bleeding that we have. Um, well, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, from the emergency medicine standpoint, what we're looking for with this neurosurgery consult, what they might help us out with. Yeah, so patients who who have a large or severe intracranial hemorrhage may require surgical decompression. So that's why it's important to get neurosurgery on board early. A lot of times, uh, patients who also have ICH can be closer monitored on the neurosurgery service or in the neuro ICU, and they will place a bolt or drain to help facilitate uh, knowing what the intracranial pressure is or decompressing the skull by getting some of that blood out. Okay, great. And yeah, they're going to be the ones that are going to help determine who's that surgical candidate and what they need. Um, so definitely getting them on board, whether that's uh, locally or giving them a call, giving a call to a neurosurgeon at a tertiary care center so you can quickly get this patient, you know, transferred to the hospital where they can get that intervention is really important. So tell us a little bit about the ICH severity score and, and what we might use that for in the, uh, in the emergency department and why it's important for us to, to think about calculating this on our patients. 
Yeah, so the ICH severity score helps us uh, provide risk stratification of the patient. Um, basically, if the patient has uh, their age is over 80, the size of the bleed is over 30 milliliters, which we can calculate on the CT head. Uh, there's an intraventricular hemorrhage. Uh, there is an in infratentorial origin of the hemorrhage. Um, and there's a lower GCS, then this will predict a worse outcome for the patient. Again, this is a severity score. So, you know, you can have a higher risk or a lower risk, but um, if you have four points based off of GCS age, site of bleed or a size of bleed, um, four points predicts a 97% mortality rate. Um, and this is our most validated tool to help stratify um, patients with ICH. Okay. Great. And I think another thing, you know, is that this could be trended, um, you know, a little bit as well. So you can, uh, you know, monitor changing GCS. You can monitor, you know, change in size of bleed as things that might, might uh, help later on with repeat imaging to figure out what, what direction this patient, uh, you know, may or may not be uh, heading in, or what their mortality may or may not be. Um, but all that being said, you know, severity scales can be used to help measure the size of hemorrhage, but really shouldn't be used as the sole factor in deciding to discontinue treatment. So there are a lot of different factors that that uh, need to be considered, and this is definitely a decision that you know I like to have with uh, my neurosurgery uh, colleagues instead of providing recommendations myself to family on kind of what what appropriate interventions might be, even if I know that, you know, that things are going to be um, pretty bleak, bleak outlook here. Um, so Mary presented you with this, with this uh, patient, and there was a lot of uh, different things that we needed to do to emergently stabilize this patient in our emergency department. So why don't you just kind of summarize, uh, Erica, what your goals are, you know, what you're going to do as soon as you um, are in the CT scanner, you look at the CT scan, you find out that this patient has, uh, has this kind of uh, bleed. Yeah, so the first thing we want to do is, you know, maintain that, that blood pressure. Uh, we can start a nitrotipine drip just to maintain that blood pressure under 180. Um, looks like when the patient went to the CT scanner and presented to the ED, it was, it was around 180. Um, we'd also give BCC for reversal for the eloquists and make sure to elevate the head of bed. Um, and then basically our definitive kind of treatment for this patient is going to be getting neurosurgery on board and getting their recommendations. So getting an urgent consult from neurosurgery um, as they may need to admit the patient to a neuro ICU. Okay, great. So I think if we were going to summarize, you know, what, what uh, things we're considering you know, it's about bringing blood pressure down to a more uh, closer to normal, a little high, you know, higher end of normal range, and then trying to make a lot of other things normal. You know, um, uh, even though we might get 3% saline, we're not trying to make this patient hypernatremic. You know, we want to ventilate them uh, appropriately, maybe some brief ventilation if they're uh, herniating, but focus on normal temperature, normal blood sugar. Um, get neurosurgery on board and admit the patient to the neuro ICU. Um, and just a little plug for one of our other episodes, you know, we talk about nicardipine drip here, 
you know, depending on whether you're sending this patient out and what capabilities you might have with your EMS agency that would be transferring this patient, that might actually impact what blood pressure medications you might want to start or use. Um, so just a plug for the other episode that we have on um, EMS management, where we'll talk about preparing patients for interfacility transport. So, uh, so Mary, so, you know, you, you hooked up Erica with this challenging case that she, you know, was able to successfully manage, but tell us a little bit about how we build these, uh, you know, ICH systems of care. Um, so we make sure that all of our patients that come in with this diagnosis get, get the best care possible. What are some components of that? Um, I think, you know, trying to manage these patients is very challenging. So having kind of the framework at each step is super important. You know, making sure that EMS crews are able to recognize stroke early um, and notify the hospital so that they can prepare. Similarly, within the hospital, you know, there are FAST teams, which are stroke response teams um, that allow for early recognition of stroke signs and symptoms, um, as well as not notification of the appropriate teams and kind of mobilization of those resources. Um, you know, this is really a multidisciplinary effort um, to help streamline treatment. Um, you know, that will be with your EMS crews, your nursing staff, your pharmacists, um, and your physicians. We all work together, you know, in the de emergency department as well as in the hospital to care for these patients. So um, kind of having some of those, the plans for stroke management streamlined among the different disciplines is very helpful. Um, this is with things like anticoagulant reversal, you know, making sure pharmacy is aware that you have a patient coming in with anticoagulant reversal and kind of having each level trained on that, um, as well as things like order sets that kind of streamline um, the ordering process and get things started right away. Um, and certainly having kind of a streamlined plan for definitive care once you know you've kind of emergently stabilized them in the emergency room going forward is also super important. Great. Erica, anything else to uh, add? Any other um, big things that uh, that jump out for you when you're thinking about systems of care? Yeah, especially when Mary was discussing the order sets and regulation personal. I know at least in the institution that we work at, we have a multidisciplinary uh, guideline that we are able to follow that was created by and discussed upon the emergency physicians, neurosurgery team, pharmacy was on board. Um, and then I think we even at least got like hematology on board as well to discuss, you know, what in our system, specific dosing and indications are uh, given so we can have anticoagulation all, everyone's on the same page and this makes it easier. So when you go to, you know, consult neurosurgery, they're not telling you to give one thing or a different dose or anything like that. This is the guideline for our hospital. That's kind of what we follow. Um, same kind of with the order sets, making sure everything's kind of in one place. It takes away, you know, us having to think about what exactly will our consults and need. Um, we have it all in one place and we can order it with a patient. Yeah, and I really love the idea of uh, order sets and, and checklists. And I'm kind of a nerd about checklists with um, my ER care and what I do with uh, EMS agencies that I work with. Um, but especially with something like this, I mean, there's so many different moving parts to management. And add that this patient could be, you know, decompensating quickly in front of you. Maybe you've got another sick uh, patient in the bed next door. You're by yourself in a low resource emergency department. 
You know, I mean, I teach, you know, this topic to paramedic students uh, every year. And, you know, that being said, and I, I teach us the residents, that being said, like, you know, I still make mistakes if I'm not looking back on an order set or, you know, confirming with my checklist because you might have be very well intentioned to order that, you know, that anticoagulation reversal. But while you're getting ready to go put that in the computer, you get pulled somewhere else. And next thing you know, you're on the phone with neurosurgery and they're like, oh, did you reverse the, you know, the, um, the Coumadin? And you're like, ah, you know, shoot. You know, I didn't get a chance to to do that, despite knowing full well that that's really important in the management for this patient. So, so really relying on those things is is really uh, really important. You know, and I think the other thing that jumps to mind, and in, in addition to the things that you guys said, is you know I think this is a great way to decide like what we need to um, uh, stock in our emergency department. You know, if we have a order set, if we have a pathway that's agreed upon multiple specialists that. You know, this is how we're going to um, manage a certain subset of patients, be that for ICH, status epilepticus, whatnot. You know, um, that tells you what drugs you need rapid access to in the resuscitation area of your um, emergency department. So you're able to manage those effectively. Um, and then one more thing that I'll, that I'll bring up is thinking about with this streamline to definitive care, how you do things in multiple, um, you know, multiple, get multiple things working at once. You know that this patient's going to need to be transferred out, and 100% of the patients that you transfer out go to hospital A. You know, um, think about if it might take a while to get EMS on the phone. How could you maybe mobilize them while you're waiting to hear back from hospital A? You know, you know this patient's not going to be staying here, so maybe we can get EMS kind of coming our way instead of waiting until we are formally accepted and then you know calling EMS to come get the patients. So. Um, Great. Uh, Mary, you want to tell us a little bit more about like comprehensive stroke uh, committees and, and um, how these can help make sure that we are reproducing good results? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the comprehensive stroke committees are another tool to help, you know, have every um, player in this, in this setting kind of on the same page. Um, these stroke committees kind of follow the Joint Commission guidelines um, and help hospital systems to achieve the core measures um, when it comes to stroke evaluation and treatment um, and are part of kind of being a high reliability organization with, um, you know, patients who are severely ill. It's important to evaluate these cases, cases and continue to perform uh, quality improvement assessments to make sure that we're meeting um, the standards for stroke assessment and treatment. Um, and to ultimately make sure we're, we're treating patients and achieving our desired outcomes. Great. So yeah, so Erica, uh, Mary, you know, I really want to thank you guys for helping me cover this, this really important topic, um, you know, intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, Erica, why don't you just summarize some of the take-home points that we've, we've talked about today? Yeah, so uh, kind of the biggest thing, especially in the field, is kind of that rapid identification of these patients and to transport these patients with suspected ICH um, to a hospital as quickly as possible. Um, these symptoms include headache, nausea, vomiting, um, acute onset, focal neurological deficits. Sometimes these patients can just have some altered mental status or um, seizures could also be present as well. So making sure these patients are getting to a hospital. And then 
ensuring that, you know, in once they get to the emergency department, we're controlling their blood pressure, making sure it's smooth and sustained. We are thinking about anticoagulant reversal, trying to monitor that intracranial pressure by doing things like elevating head of bed, um, make sure we're treating pain. And then if we need to give any additional medications to prevent the patient from herniating, we have those on standby or give them to the patient. And then really making sure, you know, we're getting a neurosurgery consult quickly and to make sure that this patient's going to get their definitive care. Uh, using scoring tools like uh, the ICHSS or the intracranial hemorrhage severity score can help predict kind of the severity and we'll be able to monitor these um, throughout the patient's stay, um, but they should not be used as a sole factor like we had talked about kind of just continuing treatment. And then in terms of systems, really making sure you have like a multidisciplinary team that plans ahead for these patients um, and to make sure that we have like a standardized care and order set that keeps workflow smooth and more reliable. Great. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Wu, uh, Dr. Uh, Jordan, sorry, just got married. Congratulations, by the way. Um, Dr. You. Jordan and Dr. Uh, Forbes, thanks for uh, thanks for coming out and uh, you know chatting with me today about this uh, really important topic. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for. Thanks so much for listening today. If you would like to find out more about the AHA Hemorrhagic Stroke Initiative, please visit www.heart.org slash hemorrhagic stroke. See you next time. The recommendations and opinions presented by our guest speakers may not represent the official position of the American Heart Association. The materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute an endorsement or instruction by the AHA. The AHA does not endorse any product or device. A Huda Media Production.